You're listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. This is a chronological Bible study going chapter by chapter, discovering Christ in all of Scripture. This is Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, The Trespass. In contrast to the fame of Joshua in response to obedience to God's commands mentioned in the last verse of the previous chapter, we're told, but the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. The actions of one man bring guilt on the whole nation. God knows exactly what has been done and by whom. Verses 2-5, to five, Defeat at Ai Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. Ai was a town in the hills east of Bethel, west of the Jordan. As with Jericho, he sent out spies first. He didn't know the names of the towns, so he just sends them off in the general direction to find the next town. Joshua had begun his conquest of the land in the center, taking the city of Jericho. That had been done through miraculous means, with God causing the city to fall at the moment when the people shouted. But the rest of the cities would be taken by military conquest, so Joshua sent out spies to scope out the situation in the region. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. According to Joshua 4.13, the army of Israel numbered about forty thousand men. Whereas these few inhabitants of Ai numbered 12,000, according to Joshua 8.25. It's of note that there is no mention of God. So the Israelites may have already become overconfident in uh, in their own skills and had forgotten who gave them the victory at Jericho. So about 3,000 went up. But they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. So emboldened by the victory at Jericho, the Israelites were sure of an easy victory. So they sent a small number of men, outnumbered by the enemy, equivalent to one against four but they were forced to retreat and suffered the loss of 36 men. While not a large number, it is 36 more than at Jericho and would mean 36 families would be bereaved. They were devastated by the loss. Their hearts melted in fear. Earlier, this was the description of their enemies, but now it was the Israelites who were afraid. Because of this sin, the Israelites were now indistinguishable from the Canaanites. Verses 6-9, to nine, Response to the News When the outcome of the battle was reported to Joshua, he was shocked. How could God have given them such a resounding victory over a strong fortress city like Jericho, and then failure over a weak city like Ai? 
Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down on to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. So this was a sign of grief and distress in that culture and time. To do so in front of the ark represents going before the presence of God. And Joshua said, Alas, Sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord, what can I say, now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your great, own great name? So this is similar to some of the complaint psalms that imply that God has caused the problem, and they don't see their own sin. His first question was, why did you bring us across the Jordan only to deliver us to our enemies? He thought maybe they should have been content to stay on the east side, but he knew God had brought them over miraculously and then had given them a resounding victory over Jericho through another miracle. It made no sense that they were routed. But Joshua's concern was twofold. Their enemies would hear about it and it would embolden them to attack Israel and possibly defeat them, and that would be the end of the fledgling nation. His other concern was for God's glory and honor among his people and the nations. And this is similar to Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9:15-19, and Moses' concern that if God should destroy Israel after having delivered them from Egypt in Exodus 32 and Numbers 14. Verses 10 to 15, the violation exposed and the solution proposed. So God has heard Joshua's prayer, but his premise is wrong. They did not fail to capture Ai because of any fault on God's part, but because of Israel's failure. This may not be the answer Joshua wants, but it's what he needs to hear. The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up! What are you doing on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. So God tells him to stop praying and deal with the transgression. The reason they have been defeated in battle is because they have done the opposite of what they were clearly commanded to do. They were told to devote anything of value to the Lord's treasury and destroy everything else. He called this a violation of the covenant. Later, Saul would disobey and lose the throne as a result. 1 Samuel 15 Now someone had stolen valuables. In a normal situation, these would be the spoils of war, and in subsequent battles, they could keep them. But since Jericho was their first battle in Canaan, it was treated differently, and the spoils were to be offered up to God as a tithe. Now, the per so the person was actually stealing from God, not the people of Jericho. In Malachi 3, it says, Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. 
You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. It also says that they lied, and this could refer to an outright lie if they were asked about it, or even that they concealed the truth about what they had done. By claiming to have kept God's commands when they hadn't been kept, as Saul would do, was also a lie. In any case, God saw it as a lie. And they had also concealed the evidence indicating the awareness that what they had done was wrong. If they do not address and rectify the situation, God will not go with them. They'll be on their own and will surely be defeated. So God tells them what they must do to make it right. And this is a very this is very gracious of him. Go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. They are to prepare themselves to be visited by God in this way. And the means of this consecration is not stated, but there was likely some ritual involved and possibly some time spent reflecting how they might have offended God. At first they were promised no one could stand against them. Now they are told Israel cannot stand against their enemies. So not only will they not inherit the promises, but they are under God's wrath until and unless they deal with the sin. Then God tells Joshua the logistics of how the perpetrator will be exposed to show them that God knows exactly who it is. It will be done by casting lots, or by using the Urim and Thummim, just as the first king of Israel would be chosen. So the method isn't as important as the outcome. In the morning present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan, the clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family, and the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Verses 16 to 18, the perpetrator identified. God told them to address it the following morning. Could it be that he was giving the person time to confess and repent? Would it make a difference in this case with such a flagrant sin? After all, two of the commandments were broken, as well as a direct command violated. But Joshua rose early to obey. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes, and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward, and the Zerites were chosen, Zerahites. And the clan of the Zerahites came forward by families, and Zimri was chosen. Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was chosen. And this is a rewind of the genealogy in verse 1. So the word chosen here is sometimes translated as taken, and has the imagery of being captured, especially in war, as when Joshua finally takes Ai. So this reminds the reader that God is at war with sin. Imagine Achan's anxiety as the circle gets smaller and smaller, and he realizes he is going to be exposed. They knew the penalty that was coming, to be burned along with all that they had, just as the devoted things were treated, 
apart from what would go into the treasury. This is because since they took something devoted to destruction, and it was now theirs, now they were also to be devoted to destruction. God already knew who the guilty party was, as we saw in verse 1. This process was for the benefit of the people of Israel, so they would know that no sin could be hidden from him. And it also highlighted their interconnectedness with each other. Verses 19-23, to 23, The Confession and Proof Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan would glorify God by admitting his sins. And later in John 9, the Pharisees said this to the man born blind whom Jesus healed. A second time they summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. So part of praising God is admitting our sin and failure truthfully. We need to be authentic before God. Anything else is hypocrisy. The time for lying was over. It was time to confess. And this would happen again when Jonathan tasted some honey when his father, Saul, had put a curse on anyone who ate anything until the battle was over. Achan had been silent up to this point. Did he fear to incriminate himself, just in case he could get away with it? Achan replied, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, two hundred shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So what he took was a garment, silver, and gold. And these were the things that were given to them as spoil when they left Egypt. And this robe may have been richly embroidered and even studded with jewels. The word used describes a king's robe, like in Jonah 3.6. The silver weighed about five or six pounds, and the gold was about 680 grams. And here we see another commandment broken. Achan admits he coveted the items. Coveting often leads to other sins like theft or adultery or lying. And it is this second look that leads to an intense, overwhelming longing to have something at any cost. Also notice the progression. I saw, I coveted, I took, I hid. And this is reminiscent of the first sin. She saw, she took, she ate. She included her husband in the trespass, and then they hid. And David's sin with Bathsheba took the same path. He saw, he sent messengers to get her, and he slept with her. Then he concealed it, lied by keeping it a secret, and tried to cover his sin by an even greater sin, murder. James describes the progression, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after sin has conceived, it gives birth to sin. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Joshua investigates and brings out the evidence. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent, with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua, and all the Israelites, and spread them out before the Lord. 
Notice that once Achan obtained these things, he couldn't use them openly, but had to hide them, because he knew they were forbidden. Sin is deceitful. It promises pleasure, but in the end it causes regret. Verses 24 to 26, The Punishment God had already told Joshua what must be done to the guilty party when he first identified the sin. So this is what they did. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had, to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will trouble you bring trouble on you today. So he asked this rhetorical question to which an answer is not required. It doesn't matter why he did it. The punishment is based on his actions and not on his motive. Besides, he has already admitted that his motivation was covetousness. This is a severe consequence which teaches us how seriously God takes sin. The tragedy is that this ban only applied to Jericho if Achan had only waited, he could have taken spoils from anywhere else. When we read that his sons and daughters are included in the punishment, we must conclude that they are adult children who had been told about it and were complicit in the cover-up. Because God's own law says, parents are not to be put to death for the sins of their children, nor children put to death for their parents, but each will die for their own sin. As also, God said that they have stolen, and not he has stolen. But Achan is singled out because he was the one who actually stole the items. In the earlier case of Korah's rebellion in Numbers 16, his descendants were not killed, according to Numbers 26.11. And we see in the book of Psalms that the sons of Korah were psalmists. The spoils are included in what is burned. This gold and silver will not be used for worship of God because of its connection with this sin. When his animals and tent are destroyed along with him, it means all memory of him is wiped out. They also may have been in contact with the items. So it's not always the case that the nation suffers when someone sins, as here. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, only those two die, and the rest fear. But in the case of David, the first son of his by Bathsheba died, his family suffered, the concubines were violated, other soldiers were killed along with Uriah. Also, when he did the unlawful census, 70,000 died in a plague, and all those deaths were, in, were a direct result of the sin of a leader. In the case of Bathsheba, God said, You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. So like Achan, who sinned in secret, the consequences were public. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. So Achan was stoned first, then his family and animals. They buried him there and fittingly covered him with a large pile of rocks to mark the spot. It remained to the day this account was written, so those hearing about it could still go and see it as an object lesson of what not to do 
when God gives a direct command. Then, as is so often the case, they renamed the place to correspond to what happened there. They called it the Valley of Achor, or the Valley of Trouble, ever since. Later on, in the rehearsal of these events in the Book of Chronicles, the family of Judah is listed, and this man and his sin is recorded for posterity. This is written as a cautionary tale. The son of Carmi, Achar, who brought trouble on Israel by violating the ban on taking devoted things. So the spelling of the names here is slightly different, but it's clear it is about this man and this incident. So the battle for Jericho represented what could happen when Israel disobeyed God's word. The loss at Ai represented the disaster that would result when they disobeyed him. In fact, it showed that until they dealt with the sin, they were God's enemies too, and in the same sad situation as the Canaanites. Yet ironically, in the previous chapter, Rahab the Canaanite and her family were brought into the fellowship and safety of Israel because of faith and obedience. Thus we must conclude that the land is not a reward for Israel's faithfulness, but it is God's holy war against sin. Deuteronomy 9, 4-6 um, in it, God clearly says, After the Lord your God has driven them out from before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Firth says, An Israel that steps outside the covenant is no better off than a Canaanite whereas a Canaanite who accepts the covenant enjoys its blessings. So he adds that, this is, that it is this fundamental point that distinguishes the events of Can in Canaan from genocide. Yahweh is not some petty national deity who demonizes the other. He is the God of all the earth whose purpose is to bring all back into relationship with himself. And that's a quote from the message of Joshua by Firth. Scarlet Threads So what scarlet threads or hints of Jesus Christ or application to the Gospel do we find in this chapter? If Jericho was a mountaintop experience for the Israelites, then Ai was their valley experience. And it is in a valley. And just because we won one victory does not mean the next one will not come. Our Christian life is made up of both highs and lows and we need to be prepared for it. Sanctification is a lifelong process. Jericho fell easily, but the rest of the Canaanites would fight to defend their homeland. Likewise, we will need to fight against remaining sin, which does not want to be defeated. Just as God knew what Achan had done in secret, so he knows all our thoughts, words, and actions, because nothing is hidden from his sight. And he will bring all things to the light and judge them in justice. Achan stole from God. 
In the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira lied to God and were killed for it. Even though his guilt was already established by God, they still narrowed down the suspects by lot until they got to Achan, and even after he confessed, they investigated and brought out the evidence for all to see. Because justice must always be done, and all things must be done in a fitting and orderly way. Proverbs 21.15 says, When justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. So God expects leaders to exercise discipline in the congregation. Even in the New Covenant, this is expected. Even though Achan confessed his sin, he still had to face the consequences of his actions, and uh, it is his, and his sin impacted others as well. Sin is never just personal, but it always interpersonal. The same can happen to us, and did happen to the thief on the cross, who admitted he was getting what he deserved, yet he still cried out to God, uh, to Jesus for mercy, and received it, and yet he still had to die for his crimes. But all these things were written to warn us and instruct us. 1 Corinthians 10.6 says, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And First uh, Corinthians 10.11 says, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. And Romans 15.4 says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. The place where Achan's sin was uncovered and where he was punished was called the Valley of Achor or Trouble. In the book of Hosea, God uses this place to speak of the restoration of Israel after the exile in Babylon, offering hope. And there I will give her back her vineyards and will make the Valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. Jesus takes our troubles and gives us hope. And after um, the family of uh, Achan was uh, destroyed, uh, God's wrath was turned away. This is propitiation. And when Jesus died, God's wrath against sin was propitiated. It's he is our propitiation. And you've been listening to the podcast Bible Companion Series by author P.H. Thompson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and comment. Continue listening for Joshua chapter 8. May God bless the study of his word.